Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Craig Perry, co-founder and CEO of Inventa Capital. He's currently chairman of Skeena Resources, founder and chairman of Visa Silver, as well as a founder and previous CEO of ISO Energy, among a number of successful resource companies. Needless to say, Craig's had a prolific career in the mining and resource industry, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So Craig, welcome to the show. Corey, thank you very, very much. Very pleased to join you. Yes, I think we're going to have a great conversation. There's been a number of times we've crossed paths. We did some work back in the day for you, and I'm glad that we can take the time here to get into your career and your history and and experience. So I think the best is for the listeners who don't know you, can you give us some background in your career? Yeah, absolutely, Corey. So I'm a geologist by trade, you know, these days more on the sort of finance and starting and running companies side of things. But I spent, um, actually, my grandfather was an artisanal tin miner originally. So we sort of got it in the blood in the family in, in a little way. I I finished university in 1999 and joined Rio Tinto, spent eight years with Rio Tinto exploration around the world, lived in Chile, China, and then had a global role there before I joined Owen Hegarty at Oxiana. Owen had taken that company from $6 million to a $6 billion market cap before we merged with Zinefix. And Owen sort of had a great apprenticeship really under Owen when it comes to capital markets and starting and managing companies generally. We started a number of companies together. We both left Oxiana at the same time, along with Tony Manini and David Forsyth, you know, some of my key mentors there, particularly Tony and Owen. And we started a group of companies called the Tigers Realm Group of Companies. Out of that, there's some probably some familiar names in the resource sector. One of my babies there was Tigers Realm Coal. And Tigers Realm Coal is now producing a million tonnes of high quality coking coal from far eastern Russia, where we discovered a deposit and built that project. Along the way there was fairly interesting. I got to know Vladimir Putin, Roman Abramovich, among others. I've had dinner with Putin, actually, which was interesting. One of the sort of more successful companies that came out of the stable was something that Lee Courier, Chris McFadden, and I started called NextGen Energy. NextGen, we discovered the Arrow Uranium Deposit. I think NextGen is now worth four, going on $5 billion as we discovered one of the world's great deposits, not only uranium deposits. So that was a success that we're very proud of. I then moved to Canada and started ISO Energy. We spun that out of NextGen and discovered the hurricane deposit. So ISO, we took that from you know, a 10 million market capitalization to nearly a billion dollars today. So that was a hell of a lot of fun and you know a great success. And I should say also out of the Tigers Realm group of companies, we started a fund called EMR Capital. I'm still a general partner and shareholder in the fund there. We've got $3 billion of funds under management and about $8 billion of assets there in EMR Capital. So that was a great learning experience and has been very rewarding for us. And me and my partners there, which includes you know our chairman, Owen Hegarty, and I think Tony Manini is the chief investment officer there now. And then I met along the way when I moved to Canada, I met Michael Connett, and Mike and I did a deal in the cobalt space, we acquired a project north of Pemberton in BC called the Little Gem Cobalt Uranium Gold Project, and we sold that to an Australian company after 12 months. That was my introduction to Mike. He's become my main business partner mm. nowadays. He's you know, co-founder of Inventor Capital and 
founder of Vizsla Silver, uh, Vizsla Resources, and now Vizsla Silver. Mike's the CEO there. That's one of my favourite stories in the industry. Was out my meeting and doing business with Mike. I gave him about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to buy this little gem cobalt property. He staked all the ground around it, and you know we can get into that in a bit more detail. We sold it within twelve months for about fifteen million dollars. So Mike and I have been he made made us some serious money there. We became a millionaire himself by the time he was 30 out of that deal. And we've been locked at the hip ever since. I think we've started over 20 companies under the Inventor stable so far, some of them private, some of them public. And Mike's now stewarding Vizsla Silver for us, which I think, you know, it's probably the most, our Panuco discovery there might be the most important silver discovery in the last 30 years. So Mike's doing a great job there and, and we've done a number of deals together in that time. Amazing. Wow, there's so much here to unpack. There's so much here to unpack. Let's speak about your partnership there with Mike. And partnerships are inherently hard, but what was it that brought you two together and, and how have you been able to navigate that together? And I'm sure there's been times where you've had differing opinions, but yeah, take me through that. Yeah, that's an interesting... Look, it, it's been such a fruitful... Mike's, you know, one of my best mates as well. We've been partners now for six years, I think. We did that original deal on the cobalt side of things. He impressed me greatly, you know. He's quite a bit younger than me, of course. I'm, I'm now just turned 50 last year. Mike's about 35 now. He came to me one day, introduced through a mutual friend, and I was running ISO Energy. We were busy sort of getting set up there and working towards acquiring. You know, we took ISO Energy from a couple of postage stamps that we bought off NextGen, to building up the third biggest independent land position in the Athabasca Basin and went on to discover the hurricane deposit, which I think, you know, today is the highest grade uranium deposit ever discovered in the Athabasca Basin. So I was busy with that, but Mike was sort of persistent and wanted to look at other deals with me. He came to me with a deal at one stage that had fallen over on him. So he was a little bit down on his luck at one point there. So we sat down for a coffee and I said, well, well, you know, have a think about what project ideas you've got and what commodities you like and it was just before cobalt really took off back in sort of 2017 and I didn't have time over the coffee to hear the whole story but I said look meet me for a beer at the Cactus Club and here on Burrard Street in Vancouver we sat down for a beer and I said well, okay what, how, what ideas have you got and he outlined this little gem project that was owned by someone else he outlined that we needed to stake the ground around it and I said well okay how how do you go about, how long is it going to take us to stake that ground? And he said, well, if I had $7,000, we can do it right away. So I gave him my credit card. Didn't really know, Mike. This is probably about the fourth time I'd met him. So it was a real punt and taking a chance on someone who'd impressed me. Before I'd finished that beer, he'd rung up $7,000 on my credit card and staked all of the ground around the little gem project. So, you know, that was before I finished one beer. I thought, God, this guy's pretty impressive. We then, I, I cut him a check for another, I think, $130,000 or thereabouts. We got some investor money and we bought the little gem project. 12 months later, we sold that for, you know, I think we'd invested about $300,000. 12 months later, we'd sold it for $15 million. And, you know, it was a huge win for us and our investors and for Mike himself. So, you know, I thought, well, this guy's he's more a force of nature than anything else. I was very, very impressed. And it's it's been great since then. We, you know, Mike actually started Visa the Resources on his own. I then pitched in. We came a submittal came across our desk for the Panuco Silver District in Mexico in Sinaloa. So two days later, after seeing that document, we jumped on a plane down to Mexico, and we were astonished by what we saw. You know, firstly, we were a little bit trepidatious going to Sinaloa. Mm. We landed as it landed to find it was overrun by Canadian snowbirds everywhere. A great resort town. Yeah. Very, very safe. We headed up into the hills an hour outside Mazatlan and saw something extraordinary. You know, I've never seen so much silver and gold mineralization across a property. It was everywhere we went. And I was astonished because it was on the, the highway to Durango. And, you know, how had no one sort of explored this seriously in a modern way? So we were quite astonished by what we saw. We did a deal. We paid nearly $50 million for the project. People thought we were mad and never going to fund that. Now we're sitting at 325 million ounces of silver equivalent, so about sort of a bit over four, four and a half million ounces of gold equivalent at incredibly high grade, you know, around seven grams per tonne gold equivalent. And, you know, we're well on our way to something much bigger than that. I think over time it'll be 10 to 15 million ounces of gold equivalent that will prove up. That's the scale I see there. 
a, a bit of a forward-looking statement, that one, and a bit arm-wavy, but we've been right so far. You know, we've got a very clear path to half a billion ounces of silver. I think it's going to be one of the world's great silver districts we've bought. I've become, you know, through my various sort of roles, but also through a foundation that I've established called the Vancouver Mining Collective, become good mates with Randy Smallwood. Randy, of course, is a champion of our industry, and Randy introduced us to Eduardo Luna, who, you know, is probably the most prominent mining legend there in Mexico. He was just coming off. He'd been a founding Gold Corp board member, a founding Wheat and Precious Metals board member, and Randy recommended that we talk to Eduardo and bring him onto the board of Isla Silver, which was since done, so strengthened up the board there. And Eduardo's just a, a superstar and a wonderful bloke. Well, he made the point to me that it's been a mine in this Panuco area district. They've been mining there for 400 years. Mm. It's the Spanish sort of moved in. And, you know, he reckons that there'll be mining going on there for at least 100 years more based on what he's seen. Peter McGaw, Dr. Peter McGaw, we brought Peter in as well. And Peter's now an advisor on the exploration front for us. He looked at it and he makes the point that, you know, there's nine or ten major silver districts on the planet, of which five or six are in Mexico. And he thinks this is another one. This will be the 11th major silver district that's been discovered globally. So, you know, we're thrilled with what we've got there. Mike's doing a tremendous job of running that company as founder and CEO. And then, you know, we've got a number of other companies. We've tried to cover all of the battery metal space, if you like. We're very bullish on most metals. And so we've started companies to capitalise on what we think will be the biggest resource boom the world's ever seen and some outstanding opportunities we've uh, identified and managed to put our foot on. Amazing. You got to hand it to Cactus Club and to Joey over there for the deals that get done. And, um, you know, I have to say, I met Mike just at VRIC just a couple of weeks back here. And to his credit, I walked by and I see him packing up your guys's booth, right? Like there's no, I'm better than any. It's like, no, he's in it, man. And, you know, we had a nice conversation walking out. So what great history there. I want to ask when you look at these deals, so my background has been in financing and building tech companies as an example. And, and so, you know, put some hard yards behind spreadsheets. And when you look at something, there's a model in which you're going to communicate the potential economic benefit, the future benefit of a deal. Now, when we look at the resource space, I'm always curious about the mental models in which you use when you go out. When you came to the Vizsla Silver property or... When Mike pitched you this this cobalt deal, Little Gem, what was the model that you used to look and go, okay, I see the path to value? Yeah, fantastic question. Look, the first thing, I suppose we take a view on what we're going to go after first. You know, what metal is going to be attractive? What can you finance at the present time? And I've got to say, it's a pretty, very, very tough market, as bad as I've ever seen really right at the moment for a lot of things. So you, you want to find projects that you know are going to attract investor attention, particularly based on the commodity. You know, jurisdiction-wise, you need to look very much at that as well. And certainly when we went to Sinaloa, we were trepidatious, but we've been pleasantly surprised that, you know, it's a, a safe and good jurisdiction to operate where you win community and government support. So you want to tick those boxes. And then it's very much the technical side of things. And I think this is where... A lot of companies get it right and a lot of companies get it wrong. You know, you need, I think I've probably visited over, gee, it'd have to be 300 different projects and properties around the world in 70 different countries in a lot of different commodities. You know, I've got experience in diamonds, iron ore, coal, coking coal, copper, silver, gold, now lithium and uranium, of course. You know, so I've seen a lot of rocks and our team's the same and, you know, they fill gaps for me guys with really deep experience in particularly epithermal geology where I'm not an expert. So you take all of that knowledge of sort of projects and mines we've visited and seen and then look at some of the key issues for deposit geology. You know, does it have the scale? Does it have the grade? I sort of sum it up in this sense. I had a, a mentor and my the head of exploration there at Rio Tinto when I first joined was a fellow called David Klingner. Uh, and David had sort of transformed Rio Tinto exploration from, you know, burning $300 million a year and not having much success to by the time he really sort of got going there in 2000, he cut the budget down to $100 million per annum 
And then for the next 20 years, David and the exploration team at Rio Tinto did something pretty extraordinary. They delivered a Rio Tinto scale or tier one type asset to their product groups every year for 20 years. And it's things that you wouldn't have thought about, like, you know, that we discovered at Rio Exploration, the resolution copper deposit down in the US, for example, but the sort of real wins were things like big iron ore deposits. I was involved in one of those, the very first discovery I was ever involved in. I was the first geologist out of a helicopter to hit a hammer on a rock there that the deposit became wealth under Thaluna, which was 50 plus million tonnes of very high quality microplatey hematite. So that was delivered as a discovery to the product group. We also actually discovered around that time, I sat on the drill rig one summer there in 51 degree heat on a couple of deposits called Christmas Creek and Cloudbreak. We dropped that ground, Corey, if you can believe it, in 2002. We took it to the product group and we said, look, we think there's 5 billion tonnes of channel iron and lower grade hematite deposits here. They said they put it into their Pilbara mine model and it came out at, you know, somewhere between year 70 and 150. So they said, drop the ground. The holding costs for the next 70 years are going to be too much. It sat vacant for 12 months. A fellow called Andrew Forrest came along and acquired or staked the ground and picked up those properties. And now those projects produce north of 250 million tonnes of high-quality hematite every year, shipped off to China and is the backbone of Fortescue's operations, which is now, I think, the fourth biggest mining company on the planet worth about 60 or $70 billion. So that was a project. They were deposits that we discovered at Rio Exploration and still didn't, you know, they regret it now, of course, but didn't cut the mustard there for Rio Exploration. And then another example of those kinds of discoveries that Rio Exploration made, you know, they discovered a coking coal seam under a thermal cold seam in the Hunter Valley in Australia. That was handed over as a tier one discovery to the product group. So Rio Exploration under David Klinger, absolutely tremendous success and really unsung heroes of the exploration business. I know a lot of people think that, you know, juniors make all the discoveries. It's not the case. You just don't hear about them because they're in these big companies and they're not market sensitive. So they don't get reported. So David, the way he transformed exploration from making a discovery every few years to one tier one discovery every single year was to employ a set of principles for assessing projects. And you can use this for pretty much any business opportunity, but we use it for exploration and development projects in the mining space. And the three key tenants there are size of the prize, cost of the test, and chance of success. So if you're going to go and look for something, it's got to be big enough and have an economic return enough to make it worth your while. So, you know, at Panuco, for example, you know, we knew that it had district scale potential. We knew the prize was big enough to justify effort to go down to Mexico and try and raise $50 million to pay for that thing. So size of the prize, got to be a big enough opportunity. Chance of success, that talks to really the prospectivity of a project or a terrain. And to give you an example, if you're looking for uranium, you know, there's not much point in going to central BC and looking in a sort of volcanic magmatic terrain that doesn't produce much uranium. There's uranium everywhere, of course. It's in the seawater in parts per billion, and someday that might be economic. But you want to go to places that have got proven endowment, and that's certainly the Athabasca Basin in Saskatchewan. You know, you really increase your chances. And then you look at areas where there's conductive belts through that prolific province, and that really increases your chance of success in looking at those, in those sorts of terrains. Take me further there. So the Athabasca Basin is a very large part of the world. This isn't just, you know, a football field and you're like, I think over 10 yard line, that's where we're going to find some here. So how do you go through the process of saying, looking at all the information, how much guesswork is there versus, you know, I, I just find it fascinating. And for somebody like yourself and your team, you're more prolific than many others in the business. And I would love to dissect that success well let me if you will just quickly round out the last of those principles and come back to that because i love to talk about the athabasca basin you know it's been so good to me i love saskatchewan it's a wonderful province wonderful place the people are fantastic and i, I love talking about it but the last tenet there was cost of the test 
you know, you don't want to be drilling down to the Moho. There are parts of the world where you can only access by helicopter. Very expensive to explore. You want to go somewhere where it's relatively cheap to explore. Athabasca Basin, you know, another great example, despite being in northern Saskatchewan. Drilling costs are relatively low. There's plenty of drilling companies. In winter, you can skid across those lakes. You don't need helicopters all the time. So relatively cheaper to explore. So size of the price, cost of the test, and chance of success. And we apply that to everything we look at, you know. Where we haven't is probably where we've had the biggest issues. You know? mm. And so we try to stick to those principles very strongly. Yeah, the Basque Basin is an interesting one. You know, I should say that that Arrow deposit and NextGen was also helped by Andy Brown. Andy Brown was an ex-Rio Tinto geologist, mate of mine, and he liked a few things in the Athabasca Basin. So he and Lee brought us a few deals there. We acquired the radio property and then went on to acquire this ground that hosted the Arrow deposit off Richard Patricio and his team at Mega Uranium, and we made that discovery. That was an interesting one, but, you know, I then came to Canada after that. I think we discovered that in 2013-14. I moved to Canada with my family in 2016, spun out ISO Energy, started ISO Energy, did a little raise, and I, I suppose there was a fellow there that helped me set it up called Wes Short, and Wes and I, we inherited the old next-gen office and we're sort of sitting there looking at each other, well, okay, we've raised this $6 million. What the heck do we do now? And I remember thinking it was quite a stressful time and I thought, geez, we've got no bloody chance here. But we'd... Um, <laughs> so, you know, we knew we were in the right neck of the woods. We had some interesting ground. We knew we, we had a strategy there that, to put our foot on as much ground as we could. This is where it got interesting is that I ended up having a secret weapon. We'd recruited Steve Blower across to NextGen. He'd just left Denison. He discovered the Griffin part of the Wheeler River ore body, so tremendous success. And Steve came across to NextGen as our owner's rep on the initial Arrow resource and then joined me as my VP of exploration at ISO Energy. And Steve's been my secret weapon there in the Athabasca Basin. He knows it like the back of his hand. He's worked for over you know 20 years in the Athabasca now. He's the kind of guy that can quote drill hole numbers from 30 years wow. ago. And he and Andy Carmichael and then Justin Rodko joined the team and Andy Carmichael and, and Justin are, again, superstars. We actually won the AMEBC Colin Spence Award last year, the, the four of us, for the discovery of the hurricane deposit. And, you know, we started staking ground, buying ground, doing deals, and they knew about a drill hole. You know, they've obviously got great databases but great minds as well and remember every important drill hole in the basin, you know. They came to me with a project that Cameco had, the La Rock East project. We approached Cameco. We knew there were one particular but a couple of interesting drill holes. We sniffed some mineralisation, a little bit of alteration. We thought that Cameco had drilled off, off the conductor. They hadn't drilled close enough to the conductor to really test that target. But we knew there were sniffs there. So they came to me and we negotiated with Cameco to buy that. We paid $300,000 worth of stock and about 20000 in cash. Cameco, I think, sold at about $0.30. Cents. We financed it a dollar, by the way, but it got as low as $0.23. Cents. I bought a heck of a lot of stock down there. And I think I like to joke, you know, exploration takes a lot of perseverance and persistence, and in this case, a huge amount of perseverance and time. We signed the deal with Cameco, I think, in May. We had a drill rig out there six weeks later, and we announced the discovery of the hurricane deposit two weeks after that. So that was sort of, you know, from an acquisition to discovery, eight weeks. And I've got to say, it's a big shout out to Steve, Justin, Andy and Keith Bodnachuk, who also joined us from Denison and Wes Short, absolute superstars. And they're, they're my secret weapon when it comes to the Athabasca Basin. There's no, you know, we spun out another set of properties to a company called 92 Energy and they've since made a discovery under Steve's guidance. So Steve's now discovered three uranium deposits, two of them world-class and absolute superstars. By the way, we have another uranium vehicle. They came with me from ISO Energy when we left to set up Inventor Capital, and the fellas have set up a company called COSA Resources. COSA is our uranium exploration vehicle, and they're doing the same thing there at COSA, putting their foot. You know, they're the nice guys of the industry as well, and they're super smart, can raise capital, so we're doing deals that other people can't do, I think. Mm. We've got some fabulous-looking ground in one of the central conductive belts that is very much underexplored. And it's the same thing. We've got ground that Cameco have 
flailed up the conductor, drilled off the conductor, and lots of targets have come out of that. So I think we're a great chance of discovery there at COSA. That's our approach. You know, I don't get in too involved on the technicals there in the Athabasca Basin because these blokes know it like the back of their head. Yeah. When you make the point that some your guys can quote drill holes from 30 years ago, it, it reminded me of a gentleman named Michael Weckerly. So he was a former trader, co-founder, I believe, of GMP Securities. And the legend on the street was there's only one Weck because he as a trader had like this photographic memory to just know where, you know, blocks of shares were, who, who needed to move this and that. And it was that memory, which was his superpower. And it sounds like that is perhaps very similar to the team that you have here. These guys are just absolute all-stars and it comes down to, to the brain that they have. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that about Weck. I've met him a few times now. He's an interesting fellow. My mate, Sean Rusen, who founded the Cisco companies, introduced me to Weck. But yeah, that's right. I love those. You, you know, if you find a geologist that's got a brain like that, you want to hold on to them okay. because they're, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah, really. Now, take me back to when you first made money, you first made real money. How did that change you? What was that like for you? I'm not sure I've made it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I look, uh, when did I first make real money? I actually made it when I was at Tiger's Realm. You know, investing personally did okay there. And then we started Tiger's Realm Coal, and that was look, incredible. I think I probably was sort of worth a couple of million bucks at that stage. I had a house, done a little bit of property development work, actually, that made some money on. And then Tiger's Coal came along. We jumped on a plane, flew to Russia and bought a big coal deposit, billions of tonnes of coking coal, and then made a discovery of a high-grade thick seam. I started that company myself in 2010. I think we raised sort of $10 million at a $20 million valuation. IPO'd it 12 months later on the ASX. At a, From memory, the valuation was about $150 million, so it was sort of pretty much a 10-bagger for our investors, including me, and quickly made on paper for myself 20 or $25 million. So I was thrilled. And ahead of the IPO, I made the mistake of walking into a Porsche dealership and thinking, right, I'm going to pick whichever Porsche I want because I'm a bit of a car nut. And we IPO'd and it just continued with the market downturn to head south after 2011-12. I think it got to 56 cents off an IPO price of 50 cents. It's now trading a bit over a penny uh, with a couple of billion shares on issue. Russia, of course, became very difficult to do business after that first Ukrainian crisis in 2014 and 15. So I, I lost all of that pretty much <laughs> very quickly. So it didn't have a chance to change me, Corey, unfortunately. Mm. But I got a sense of things, and, and it wasn't until, you know, NextGen took off and then ISO Energy that I sort of caught back up and then some, so that was a good outcome. You know, the thing about money, I think, it's not bad to have, and I love experience, I love travel. I took my family down to Antarctica at the start of last year, so it allows you to do that sort of stuff, and I, I love that. But the thing it means to me, and I, you know, we talked about this off camera, but you know, I'm not very, very good at selling things. So I sort of tend to hang around too long and ride them all the way back down and done that a few times recently. But it allows me to write bigger checks and invest seriously and prop up some of our companies and get, you know, at that really pointy end of, of exploration when you, you know, you're not sure you're going to get a project, you've got a vehicle or a shell, it's very high risk, low potential of return type investing. It allows me to do that much more freely. And the other thing I think about money I do is that, you know, what it means to me is some degree of freedom. You don't have to be bloody desperate and worried about a job and, and allows you to travel and do things that you otherwise might not. So that's what I, I like about it. You know, I don't know about sort of, you know, I grew up, my parents weren't wealthy by any stretch. My father was a sheep shearer originally when I was born and so, you know, no big inheritance coming, but it'll be nice, I think, for me to be able to buy a house for each of my kids and set them up that way. I don't think you want to give them too much money. You want them to be Yeah, you don't want to spoil them. Yeah. Huh. You know, you bring me back. When I first got into the business of finance, I was I moved to Calgary. And this was kind of 08 time frame. And we're just coming off a major oil boom, 08, 09. And like, there's like young dudes rolling around in, in Porsches on like unvested options kind of thing. Right? It was just yeah. mental. And it all came falling down and I I hadn't made any real money at that point. I just looked around. And I was like, well, maybe there's a lesson here to see when that all crumbled down. So I remember back and 
yeah, I also want to say I do appreciate your enjoyment of Porsches as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although it's an each I would scratch. You know, I went into I, after the sort of hurricane discovery, we made a bit of money. I looked at Porsches, but then I made the mistake of going into a McLaren dealership. And if you drive a McLaren, it's very hard to walk out of there without buying one. Really, so I've had a few of those so far. Love the McLarens, but well, what's I've never never been in a McLaren. I've always I just love Porsches. I love old Porsches. There's right. something about the legacy of, of a design that has stood the test of time, you know. And it wasn't until recently they had moved over to you know, water cooled from an air cooled engine that you know it was just an amazing history there. But why McLaren? What's is it the status or is it there's something more to it? Look at you know, I've looked at Ferraris as well. When I first looked at Ferraris, you know. You'd go into the dealership here and they'd say, oh, look, you know, you have to build up a, a resume with us and buy a secondhand one and then we might sell you, put, give you an order for a new one. That's changed a little bit in recent times with interest rates, I think, the last time I talked about it. But I'm a bit of a purist. I love, you know, that I've got a 765 LT at the moment and it's a driver's car. It's I did buy the ones I bought are for the track. Unfortunately, I just haven't had the opportunity or time to, or motivation, I suppose, to get out to the, the track, but I will this summer. The real sort of purist car, yeah. and you, you know, yeah. their driver's car. Amazing. It gets me to whistle a very quick. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's jump around. Can you take me to dinner with Vladimir Putin? How did you get there? That is a pretty fascinating place to be. That was a strange time because, of course, you know, Russia had annexed Crimea at that time. They have, you know, I'd got to... I think I raised 187 million for Tiger's Realm Coal to explore and then develop, and we ended up building the project. As I said, what happened was that we were the biggest Australian investor into Russia in all of history. We did it at a time that was fairly tricky. You know, from 2011 through to 2016 was when I left the company, and of course the Ukrainian situation had flared up in 2014-15, so that made things very challenging. But as part of the funding, I brought in a private equity group called Bering Vostok, which was you know, absolute nightmare to deal with. Mm. I'm happy to say that. I don't think we'll see much from those guys because they're Russian-focused these days, but incredibly difficult. But it, what they did do for me was introduce me to the Russian Direct Investment Fund, which Putin had set up as an investment fund to encourage foreign investment and particularly investment in the far east of Russia. And so here we were. You know, out in Chukotka, the very far eastern part of Russia, up near the, you know, not far from Alaska on the Bering Sea, mm. discovered this project, you know, this fund that Putin had established, the Russian Direct Investment Fund, I think invested about $20 million into the company and Bering Vostok another $30 million. So we did that financing. So we got on the radar there of the Russian government very strongly and we enjoyed their great support. Russia gets a bad rap, but what we found is that it's a very good place to do business, particularly Far Eastern Russia. You get good support from the government. You can permit things in timelines you can't do in most other countries. It gets a bad rap for being corrupt, but we didn't see any of that. And indeed, we won that Russian Direct Investment Fund support. You know, we won a few, the few investments that they made because we passed muster when it came to, to checking on our not our, only our policies, but our behaviour when it came to corruption as well. So that helped us win that government support. Putin, I met him several times, five or six times, I think. He sort of used to like to get us to go to, or sort of divisions of his government would like us to go to, to conferences and talk about investing in the far east of Russia. They'd sort of turn the country, you know, looking more towards the west to obviously like the rest of the world looking east and towards China on their southern southeastern border. So they're encouraging investment in resource projects in the far east of Russia. Anyway, I, I went to, in 2015, the Russian version of Davos, it is, the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. I was hanging out with the Australian ambassador to Russia and got a call from security to go to the security booth one afternoon while I was there and I thought, oh, no, okay, what have I done wrong? Here I yeah. am. I'm in a bit of trouble. And got said, uh, Mr. Putin would like to have dinner with you. So we went back to a bar there, a holding pen pre, pre the dinner. He was about three hours late. Dinner was meant to be seven and it kicked off at about 10 o'clock at night. But I got to stand there and have a beer with Ivan Glassenberg. Ivan and I hit it off and a few other notables. Jack Ma was there, the chairwoman of Nokia. Paul Rollinson, actually, the CEO of, of Kinross, was there. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we had a great old time. And, yeah, it was an interesting discussion. 
speaks English very well. He's you know, incredibly intelligent. He schooled us in sort of 200 years of Russian and European politics. Fascinating guy, of course, much maligned uh, now because of the situation. But at the time, that was a you know, fabulous, fabulous experience. I think I was by far the dumbest and poorest person in that room. What were the feelings and the thoughts going through your head before stepping in that room? I mean, that's a pretty fascinating place to be and experience to have. Very, very nervous. I quickly sent a text out to my, my Russian business partner and said, you know, if this comes up, what should I ask him and what should I avoid? And he said, well, don't talk about politics and good luck. It was quite funny. You know, you, you know we got on to, I think, the chairman of Total really grilled him about Crimea and the situation in the Ukraine, which was, was really interesting. Mm. I sort of tried to change the tone a little bit and asked him a question about, you know, what his intentions for encouraging further investment in the Russian Far East. You know, I thanked him for his investment into our company and, and then said to him, you know, we'll be at your Vladivostok Far East Economic Forum in a couple of months. We'd love it if you swing by the booth. He actually did that. He came by our booth, as did Pamela Anderson, would you believe, when we were out in Vladivostok. So Russia was an interesting time, I suppose. You, I love countries where you can get access to decision makers when it comes to a project, you know, with Eduardo Luna now on board and our connections in Mexico, we're getting higher and higher levels of access to decision makers. Here in Canada, probably a little bit trickier, you know. It just came to mind, Vladivostok, that is the, the area of a, I just read a book called The Tiger. And this, sorry to change topics here, but this came to mind because it was, the book got introduced to me by listening to another podcast where this person said, this book will rip your face off. Really? And now I extend that as a book to read because it's all about the Siberian tigers in that area. And there is like the mysticism around them and the fact that like it's, it's based on real life events. It's all like a, an account of, I'm sorry to change directions so far, but it just, it was, it was in my head there and it's a fascinating part of the world. Oh, I've got to, I've got to read that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they're giant things, though, Siberian yes. tigers as well. But And the bears, you know, our project out there was just a fascinating place. There's been a lot of coal production probably over the past 100 years from the area, but there's, the bears are massive. They're sort of Kodiak-scale bears. They roar up at the helicopter when you fly over them. And then ri rivers just teeming with salmon, you know, boiling with salmon. And you see a lot of narwhals off the coast oh, yeah. as well. I saw one of those within about five metres of shore, not far from our project. So, yeah, fascinating, beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Yeah, a bit tricky to get to. Coming back to a bit of the purpose of the podcast and speaking to CEOs and IRA pros, in your experience financing these deals, I mean, you, for example, you mentioned ISO, you came in, you had six million bucks that you were able to raise. And I don't know if that was just a a shoe-in oversubscribed or if that was scraping it together with a, a hope and a prayer. But that then leads to another round. You put that money to work, the work comes back, you're able to communicate that to the market. Can you take me through that process and some of the experiences and, and perhaps lessons that you've learned that, that others should know when raising capital? Yeah, very, very good question. Look, that was... You know, it was my first hit out personally at raising capital in Canada. I'd just moved to Vancouver. I remember thinking it was very hard. You know, we'd had a, I guess, been very fortunate that I've made some friends with some, you know, seriously successful and serially successful people in the industry. I remember, you know, then talking to Bryce Roxburgh and Yale Simpson from Exeter and Ex-Torre Group, you know, they tip money in. But it was a bit of a grind. It was a bit of a grind. We were coming off the back of, some great success there at NextGen. So that made it a lot easier and the strategy seemed to resonate with people. I know my mate Warren Irwin, who runs Rosso Asset Management, Warren um, surprised me and gave us a million dollars into the business. So it wasn't the easiest money that I've raised. You know, right at the moment, though, I've got to say, it's bloody difficult. It's as tough a market as I've ever, ever seen. Unless you've got a really first-rate project, it's hard. You're, you're really sort of scrounging to raise capital. You know, I think you probably need to start fairly small if you're sort of new to the industry, new to the business. As a geologist, I suppose, you know, it doesn't you don't get trained in capital markets. So it helps to have people around you with great experience in capital markets and a track record of success. That's allowed us, I think, now to, to date my companies that I've started or or led have raised a bit over $1.1 billion. So 
We've done a hell of a lot of financing in recent, certainly in the last five years. Money's been easier to raise for us because of the sort of success we've had. So you try and build on that. You know, one of the things that I've observed over time is that you should never try and price a deal to perfection. You should leave something on the table for those putting money in and, you know, try and make the money out of the gates and then they'll support you forever type of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you need you need mentors, you need good bankers if you, you, you want to work on those relationships and know how to engage with and talk to bankers and win their support. That's sort of the approach. But building on nowadays for us, building on that success that we've had really helps. Yeah, yeah. You can definitely continue on with the momentum once you get it in there. How about speaking about bankers, though? Because that's always uh, an interesting one and I perhaps misunderstood for many issuers in the market. How do you build a good sell-side relationship? Yeah, great question. You do typically need a bit of scale. Like some of the smaller banks will, will do smaller deals, but you, you need to be really probably raising north of $5 million bucks. If you've got a good project, you know, you don't have to worry about seeking them out too much. They'll, they'll find you pretty quickly. And then you learn who you can and can't trust. And we've, we've got a sort of great team of guys, you know, guys at um, PI Financial, Dave Gogan, Brody Dunlop, Tim Graham, they're fantastic guys. Dan Barnholden at Stiefel's a good mate and has been great for us. And then Canaccord, you know, Dave Sadowski's one of our favourite bankers and a, a real winner. He, he was actually an analyst and I think the first or second analyst to pick up on what we had there at NextGen before he went into banking. So Dave and the Canaccord team have, have done a great job. You know, the other thing, thinking about financing, you know, there's so much like, you know, you do roadshows, of course, and talk to a lot of investors. A lot of the seed capital we raise is, you know, comes a little bit from, um, you know, having lunches with rich mates type of thing. And Peter Brown's become a very dear friend of mine. And, you know, Peter always puts money into our deals at a fairly early stage and has been relatively successful doing that. Yeah. You know, guilting your rich mates into giving you money to go and drill holes is the business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what a fascinating business it is. And I often tell people that, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my career doing this financing and building tech deals. And, you know, I thought that was the the cat's ass, Silicon Valley, look what we're doing, you know, that kind of stuff, even though we're doing it out of Calgary. I neglected to look at the mining industry and I failed to see how fascinating it is and what an incredible microcosm of, a, of an economic driver we have for, for Canada and for the world. It's really an incredible space and the nature and the relationships and the dynamics of it are, are really special. So it's uh, that's incredible. Oh, it's a great business. It's a bloody terrible business as well, this sort of downturn we're going through. You, you know, one of the good things about a cyclical business like this with various elements to it, you know, various commodities, is that, you know, it ain't all bad all the time. And we've seen a lithium boom here in the last few years and people have made good money out of that. We're now in the nascent stages of a massive uranium boom. So there's some green shoots there, precious metals doing well. But, gee, everything else is so bloody tough at the moment. Mm. It, it gets a bit soul-destroying. You know, you put out good results and people sell into it. And, you know, it, it's a tough, tough business. And, you know, at times I lament that I didn't go into property or <laughs> or, or tech, tech myself. But I'm, I do love geology and I love the travel and the thrill of the chase, you know, it's a big treasure hunt. Yes. Exploration's a fun business. Yeah, it, it's a roller coaster, isn't it? And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on anticipating market movements. I've seen a few individuals, for example, no names because they come with some, some strings, but in the cobalt space, as an example, saw it before anybody else did in the carbon space. You know, it was a year or two before we had a big run on carbon and carbon credits and was able to put a deal together in time and not too late. And I've always been curious about how these individuals are able to see, you know, potential market uptakes. And is it just luck or is there something else they see? And have you observed the same thing? And do you have an approach for that? If you look at some of the other successful groups, you know, John Robbins has become a good mate of mine. And, you know, the Discovery Group, I think probably the preeminent exploration group in Canada today, had massive successes that coffee Kamenak project they sold you know of course they started great bear and sold great bear and great bear royalties for about 2.2 billion you know very market so you know i look at those guys what we do it's sort of a little bit 
you know, I know John's always got in the back of his mind projects. He's seen so many projects across Canada that they can go, okay, she's, this looks like we're going to get a cobalt market. Let's go and get this project. Probably similarly to a lot of other groups, but I take a little bit of a straw hats in winter type approach. That's an interesting analogy. What, straw hats in winter? Straw hats in winter. So you're buying things that people don't don't want and building up an inventory of projects. You know, I've got a tin company and I think at some point we're going to have a serious tin boom. It's a very tight market. Environmental regulations are making it even more and more tight and demand is rising strongly. So we went and staked a lot of ground around my hometown of Glen Ennis in northern New South Wales, where, you know, some of the ground where my father, uh, grandfather mined as an artisanal tin miner back in the 40s and 50s. We staked a lot of ground there, then acquired a, a tin deposit, a couple of tin deposits down in Tasmania. That strategy hasn't quite played out for us, but as soon as we get a market, we've got them there ready to go. The other thing, you know, we love copper. I've got a very positive outlook for copper. I think, you know, based on past precedent, we could well see 20 or $30 per pound copper in the next five years. So that straw hats in winter, we're trying to buy as many copper projects, low to medium grade to projects that are very cheap at the moment, put them in the inventory, have them ready to go when the market turns. And that's what we're doing in Vizsla Copper. You know, we've got a, a big resource base that's growing through acquisition all the time, doing some drilling, but probably less drilling because it's cheaper to buy these things at the moment, you know. And so I wish I could say that we knew how to time the market and see what was coming. Mike's a little bit of a savant. He saw that cobalt market. He's seen other predicted other markets very well I'm not so good at that I'm more just okay let's if you see a quality project let's buy it put it in an inventory yeah. and dust it off ready to go when the market turns okay I see what you're saying and now to the analogy of you know straw hats in, in winter buy them when they're on sale exactly that's right yeah. spot on that's what we did with ISO energy you know we built up the third biggest land position in the Athabasca Basin back from sort of 2016 through to 17 18 back when no one cared about uranium. Uranium prices had bottomed out at about $14 a pound, and that worked out very well for us. For us, you know, we took ISO Energy from $10 million market cap to nearly a billion dollars today wow. with that strategy. And I think, you know, some of the other things we're doing, Vizsla Copper, probably the biggest example, that's my day job as executive chair there at the moment, just putting our foot on as much of British Columbia's copper pounds as we possibly can while people are giving them away. Okay, Wow. What stories or experiences have been most influential for you? Was there any moments in your career where you're like, whoa, that was a, a turning point, good or bad? Great question. I've had so much of it comes from mentors. You know, I was very fortunate at Rio Tinto Exploration. There's some great unsung heroes there, guys like Hilke Dalstra, who headed up iron ore exploration. Hilke, no one's ever heard of him outside of Rio Tinto and academia, really, but one of the world's greatest explorers. I would say he's probably found well over 10 or 15 billion tonnes of high-grade hematite, sort of a trillion dollars worth of rock Hilke's discovered. Wow. And, you know, he hasn't personally gained much from it because it was within Rio Tinto. So seeing how those guys operate, seeing how Rio Tinto exploration operates, there's a fellow there, Paul Agnew, who I think is probably the world's greatest exploration geochemist, watching how he assesses a project and does geochemistry or assesses geochemistry, just fascinating. So those sort of serious, hardcore, technical learning experiences. Then when I met Tony and Owen, Tony Manini and Owen Hegarty, and we'd started Tiger's Wrong Group, there were some really important moments there for me. Owen and I left, you know, Oxiana, I think, was a $6 billion company when we merged with Zinefex. He had a big corner office. We moved into an office that's about half the size of my office when we started Tigers Realm and sat together in that office for 18 months. He was the vice chair of Fortescue. So I'd sort of sit in and listen to some Fortescue board meetings and things like this. It was like a mining and capital markets MBA on steroids in short time, sitting in an office with him for 12 or 18 months. So that was very, very important. The thing that really gets me going, that gets me out of bed is this, ex, you know, the exploration process and discovery. There's nothing quite like making a discovery. It's better than sex. <laughs> Although people have told me if you think that, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> but, um, 
But, you know, when we discovered the Amarm North coking coal deposit, that was actually outcropping. So we walked onto it and then we put a drill hole in it and there was sort of 15 metres of high-quality coking coal. That was a, a great feeling. The discovery holes at Next Gen, I think it was hole 14, was a barn burner and um, mm. that was so exciting. Those are the things that stand out. The hurricane one was fascinating. You know, we had budget for two holes left at the end of the season. We managed to get the rig in there, and I think we drilled one, uh, two holes, and one hole hit, you know, two meters at 0.8 percent uranium. It was enough to call it a discovery, I think. Although I don't think we talked publicly about a discovery at that point. And then we had to sit tight while the freeze happened, and oh, sorry, while the while we raised more money, and before we could get back out there. So we had four or five months before we got to get out there and find and drill what was there but I remember thinking it was an interesting five months just tantalizing wondering what could be turned out to be one of the world's great uranium deposits highest grade uranium deposit ever discovered wow wow that was fun that was a lot of fun. yeah Panuco I've got to tell you that story that's one of my favorites when we got down there you know, we, we managed to do the deal. Mike grounded out. He spent months in, in Mexico negotiating with the vendors there. It was a painful, painful experience for him. I remember after six weeks of being down there, I went to visit him just to, as we were about to sign the deal. And he was a broken man. <laughs> he was this fed up. Anyway, we put a rig out there in hole seven. I can't actually, it's on my wall here. It was the discovery hole, hole seven, eight kilos of silver, equivalent over six metres. And then we, you know, got a call from Eric Sprott. I'd like to give you $10 million. Will you take it? We quickly did a financing the day of the announcement of that and raised $30 bucks. and the rest is history. That was, that makes the hair stand on the, really, yeah. the back sort of experience. It still does today. I hear your your enthusiasm for there and, and you know, all of the, the thought, the discussion, the mental modeling going in and then your your strategy of putting holes in the ground and then when the, the results come back and, and to see something that is, you know, that barn burner of a hole kind of thing, right? Like what a fascinating profession. It also boggles my mind that there's not more young people moving into the industry because it's just, it's so exciting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I think, you know, when we get a, a serious uptick and, and turn in the markets, you'll see more people come into it. But it is, you know, that brain drain and difficulty in recruiting people to this industry. You know, you've got to travel a lot. You spend a lot of time in the field. It's going to be an issue for us. And one of the reasons I think we're going to see $30 per pound copper is you just can't find people to build mines these days of the scale that we're going to need as the market takes off. Yeah. Okay. Craig, we've already ripped through an hour here which has been such a good conversation uh, all over. A couple final thoughts or final questions. Um, I'm curious about what you read or other forms of media that you, you like to consume. I've gone away from consuming any of the sort of mainstream media these days. I think we're sort of getting lied to a lot. Yeah. I spend, and they're not even trying to hide it nowadays, but uh, as my friend Peter Brown says, particularly here in Canada, one cent from the government to a media outlet is one cent too much, too many. Mm. You know, it breeds corruption. So I, I steer clear of that. I'll typically, you know, on social media, read politicians' web pages directly to find out exactly what they're saying themselves, and then you can make an assessment. Probably spend too much time doing that. And outside of that, really, just the financial papers. I'm a little bit ADHD. So it takes me a while to get through a book. I keep I go off on tangents and bloody overthink things. And so mm. although I did buy Elon Musk's biography the other day. One of the things I have enjoyed over the last few years is Ray Dalio's Principles, yeah. which I think is a, a read as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I really, really have enjoyed his work because it's that ability to just understand. What I like is I like understanding how others think. And I find that he's been really good at being – able to communicate that yeah and then look at it's funny actually it's a good time to ask that i'm looking on my shelf here there's a glossary of geology i haven't picked that up in a long time picked my son up from school yesterday and he was asking me dad what are the good books to read on investing hmm. he just read robert kiyosaki who was here in vancouver for the video oh, yes he just read rich dad poor dad you know a lot of my mates and i that sort of changed our lives and our perspective quite yes. dramatically I think that's interesting you saying that because I found that the book did the same for me and it was just a such a game changer. But I also always pinned it up as that kind of book that that is on the fringe of, you know, BS self-help. 
But then when I actually took it, I read it twice and I brought it back and I started putting those principles to work. It's been an absolute game changer. Oh, totally. My next door neighbor in Whistler, you know, it's transformed his life. I think he's got six houses now. Shout out to Nev <laughs> from Snowboard Addiction. He, yeah, look, he, he's so many of my mates. It's just fascinating. Riley's read it now. We play Cash Flow Quadrant, which is the game that's associated with wow. it with, with neighbor Nev. Yeah, that's a beauty. But uh, look, I, I think there's so many resources online now for in, learning about investing. I did point him in, in towards my favorite investor of all time. Stan Druckenmiller mm. is just a genius. I love hearing his stuff. But it was funny, when I picked him up in the car yesterday, you know, he's on his phone looking at bloody YouTube or whatever. I'm on the phone to Peter Brown, and Peter's outlining some of his favorite picks. And I'm stuck the phone, stop it, listen to Peter. This is where you'll learn about investing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, just on a side, you know, something else that I think about, you know, because we're talking about investing is like, my kind of investing career has like the first deal I ever did was private placement. I put on a credit card in my early twenties, you know, and, and of course I'm signing that sub saying, yeah, of course I'm an accredited investor. That actually turned out, that was a deal we did. It was a deal between the Russian space agency and a Canadian company we put together. This was with Scott Larson and Cameron Mitchell. It was the first formative deal of my career called Earthcast. But anyway, I, I go into that and I look since then, it's been taking wildfires, gambling, riding the roller coaster, some of which have worked and many have not. But I look back and I'm like, had I taken more of a Druckenmiller approach or, a, you know, just a kind of think and be rich, just keep building, think long term, perhaps it would have been better off. But tell you what, do it for the story, because this way has been a lot more fun. That's exactly right. One of the, the most successful and unsung heroes, you know, in, of our industry, and particularly in Vancouver, is one of my best mates, Dave Schmidt. Dave's a, an incredibly successful private investor. He, he's made tens and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. He's always writing million-dollar checks, and he, he sort of divides it into two things. Fundamental, you know, you can make a, a market success or a fundamental success. Well, we, we focus on the geology, rocks, resources, and try and make fundamental successes. We're not market, you know, no, not, not sort of paper pushers and pumper dumpers that, that go for market successes, more full us perhaps. But he also talks about writing checks. He writes a phenomenal, I don't, like he, he must do two subscription agreements a day. And he divides those into two categories. There's the fundamental investment where he really believes in a story. And then there's the political investment, you know, investor, put a check in, put it on your watch list, let, you know, support someone who you want to support despite perhaps the opportunity not being quite as good as you would have hoped. So there's a few things there to work through. Yeah, of course. Well, Craig, thank you for so much for your time. Maybe I'll just, I'm going to ask a, a final question, and, and that is any final thoughts and perhaps directed at our primary audience being CEOs and IR pros, any final thoughts for them, especially in some of these trying markets? There's a couple of things. I, I think, you know, we've seen some bad news here in BC about the, the NDP government changing regulations that will, will grant sort of right of veto to First Nations over a lot of the province, 90% of the, the province being Crown land, that could be incredibly problematic. And we won't know for 10 years. If that goes through, we'll see the effects of this in 10 years' time when, you know, nothing's getting developed. Yeah. So that could be a disaster. That troubles me. And we've got to stay vigilant as an industry against, you know, capricious, ridiculous legislation from parliamentarians that have never done anything to create a business mm. what's important so that troubles me the other thing you know not another negative one i suppose not that you know i think in this industry as an exploration geologist or explorer generally you have to be optimistic so a couple of negative things for me is a little bit unusual one of the things that still plagues us there's still a lot of uh, bad actors in the canadian junior market i hate that you know we've got a bad enough reputation as it is we don't need more of that. And I think we need to be bloody a bit more self-regulating. If you see someone doing scummy, bad behaviour, get in front of it. Bloody, uh, you know, let them know that it's not right and you, you're screwing up our industry for us. So, so that is one thought. And then finally, a really positive one. I still think we are about to go through this sort of energy transformation that the planet's going through. We're about to go through the biggest mining boom of all time, and that's against the backdrop of 
you know, under permitting, lack of investment in the sector. If you look at copper as an example, we'll probably need $200 billion of investment into projects over the next five years to meet the demand that's coming over, growing over that next five years. We don't see it. We think that we're going to see extraordinarily high metal prices. And I wouldn't be surprised if we wake up in five years' time and we see $30 per pound copper. So now's the time to start getting really, really set ahead of this next big boom. And I think it'll make that one from 2000 to 2011 pale into insignificance. So it's uh, so good times ahead. Wow. Way to end this off. And I just, I want to actually reinforce the point you made about the bad actors. I couldn't agree more. Some of the marketing that's done is just gross. You know, I've seen a number of people put half million dollar checks into month long promotes. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're, you're burning the retail investor dollars we need to pursue these projects. And there are very good groups out there who need that capital. So I appreciate you saying that and that long-term or somewhat longer-term, medium-term view of the next five years of where we could go. That's really exciting. So Craig, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me on, Corey. A real pleasure, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.